0: This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is supported by Agate, publishers of the highly praised debut novel Looped by Andrew Winston, telling the intertwined stories of a diverse group of 21st century Chicagoans. Looped was described by Kirkus Reviews as, quote, a love letter to rough and tumble Chicago. Looped is available at bookstores everywhere. For more information, go to agatepublishing.com.
1: The galactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, a.k.a. the Left Bank of New York City. It's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 11th of March in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll talk to New Yorker contributor Doug Preston. In Italy recently investigating a story about an Italian serial killer known as the Monster of Florence, Preston was arrested and charged with being an accessory to murder. He's gotten back to the States, but meanwhile his partner is still in Italy and it looks like is going to be charged with something worse than being an accessory. We'll talk to Preston about the incident and its aftermath, but first, here's some news from the book world. Well, the London Book Fair is over, but it had some exciting moments, including an attack on Amazon.com by the head of HarperCollins UK, Victoria Barnsley. During a panel discussion on the future of publishing, Barnsley interrupted a debate on Google's plans to digitize copyrighted material by saying, Well, we all want to talk about Google, but personally I see Amazon. As a bigger threat because Amazon has shown a lot of signs that they actually want to move into the publishing scene. Close quote. Barnsley noted the company had been hiring publishing executives recently and was also approaching agents, and she said Amazon's intentions seemed clear to her. Well, such a move, of course, by Amazon would be contrary to a multitude of antitrust rules and laws prohibiting monopolies and vertical integration of industries. It would be, in other words, exactly like what the world's largest brick-and-mortar bookseller, Barnes & Noble, did just three years ago when it purchased the Sterling Publishing Company and promptly started selling its own severely discounted line of classics, crippling numerous publishers such as Penguin, long known for its classics line, Given that Amazon represents a continu- considerably huger business than Barnes & Noble, the threat perceived by Victoria Barnsley seems even greater. As to comment, though, the Amazon spokesperson, noted for never having actually spoken before, again declined comment, except to say, quote, we never publicly comment on our commercial relationships, nor our plans to have total control of the commerce of ideas and art, Close quote. And on the topic of uh, literary totalitarianism, on that same London panel, uh, London Book Fair panel, another publishing bigwig, Bloomsbury CEO Nigel Newton told Barnsley she was wrong, 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 wrong. Amazon isn't the evil empire, he said. Google was. Quote, its quest to monetize for its own benefit the literature of the world must be stopped, he said. He noted that while Google is only requesting snippets of copyright and published material now, Newton said, quote, it must be regarded as likely that a subsequent management regime at Google will pressure publishers to allow it to offer 100% of text as battles for market share are joined against the other mighty search engines, close quote. In other words, Google would be doing in its publishing program what it is already doing in its library program here in the U.S. right now. That is, digitizing entire books of copyrighted material without permission for its own commercial purposes. Other members of that panel in London, such as Barnsley, said, however, that it would be suicidal not to deal with Google because they have, quote, more money than God. Well, she didn't actually say that. Uh, But she did lead the crowd in a rousing chant of resistance is futile. Meanwhile, the winners of the National Book Critics Circle Awards were announced in New York last weekend. Best Fiction went to E.L. Doctorow for his Civil War novel, The March. Svetlana Alexeyevich won the award for general nonfiction for Voices from Chernobyl. Best Biography went to American Prometheus, uh, Life of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Francine Duplessis Gray won Best Autobiography for her memoir, Them. Jack Gilbert won the Poetry Prize for his collection, Refusing Heaven. And William Logan's The Undiscovered Country won for Best Criticism. After it was all over, Doctro, who also won the Fiction Award in 1989 for Billy Bathgate, said, quote, I've wondered for many years if awards are good for literature, but I find that when I'm offered an award, I tend to accept them. Humorist Roy Blount was elected the new president of the Authors Guild this week. He'll be succeeding Nick Taylor. Said Blount, quote, Nick told me to just fix the Google thing and the rest would be easy, end quote. Blount was referring to the fact that as he takes on the job, the Guild is one of several groups, including the American Association of Publishers, that are suing Google over its programs of scanning copyrighted works for digital reproduction. The programs seem a pretty clear violation of federal and international copyright law, but most people agree the fight against Google is an uphill battle as the internet giant as the internet giant reputedly has more money than the entire publishing industry combined or as earlier noted, than God, also than crisis. Says Blount, quote, sounds like a job for a humorist. Things aren't looking good for the plaintiff in the Da Vinci Penal Code case, playing out in London. In the case of Random House versus Random House, Random House wilted in the witness stand under stiff questioning from Random House. Random House asked Random House if its charge that a Random House book had lifted the architecture of its book and used it in another Random House book meant that Random House had used the details of the Random House book in a certain order. Random House replied that it would. Leaning into the witness with increasing ferocity, Random House then pointed out to the witness, Random House, that the details in the Random House book were different from the details in the Random House book. Random House visibly stung, conceded that that was true. At which point the judge stood up and said, Ta da! The case continues, with Random House expected to take the stand next. Meanwhile, a Times of London story notes that sales of the Random House book making the accusations against the Random House book were up, significantly up. And speaking of large evil empires you can barely tell apart, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission said Monday that it had, that it had approved plans by French media mega conglomerate. Legardère, which owns the giant Hachette publishing empire, to buy giant American publisher Time Warner Books. The price five hundred and thirty seven point five million dollars. According to a Reuters wire story, this makes Lagardère the world's third largest publisher, behind the British company Pearson, which owns Penguin, and McGraw-Hill, which doesn't. This, however, creates a new issue for the publishing sprawl generally reported to be the biggest publishing sprawl previously, which is uh, Random House, which is owned by German mega-conglomerate, Bertelsmann. Does Google know about all this? Well, that's this week's news report. I'm Dennis Johnson.
0: It's Saturday, March 11th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is March 12th, and on March 12th in 1922, novelist Jack Kerouac, author of On the Road and the Subterraneans, was born in Lowell, Massachusetts. Monday is March 13th, and on that day, apparently nothing happened in literary history. The date is still open, so fire up your computers, everyone. Tuesday is the 14th, and on that day in 1887, Sylvia Beach, owner of the famous Paris based bookstore Shakespeare and Company and publisher of James Joyce's Ulysses, was born in Baltimore. Wednesday is March 15th, the famous Ides of March that Shakespeare tells us Julius Caesar was supposed to be aware of in his play, The Tragedy of Julius Caesar. But on this day in 44 BC, Julius Caesar did not take adequate security precautions and was stabbed to death by several Roman senators, including his friend, Marcus Brutus. The senators feared Caesar's growing power. He was comparing himself to Alexander the Great. And they believed that he must be killed for the good of the Roman Republic. In the tragedy of Julius Caesar, Shakespeare gives us Caesar's famous last words. Stabbed by his friend Brutus, he falls and utters, et tu Brute And Thursday is March 16th, and on that day in 1859, Nathaniel Hawthorne's story of adultery in colonial America, The Scarlet Letter, was published. Hawthorne found the inspiration for his greatest novel, and the one that made him famous, when he discovered in a chest in Salem, Massachusetts, documents relating to his own family's part in the infamous Salem witch trials in the 17th century. And Friday is March 17th, and on this day in 1747 playwright and novelist the author of the history of Tom Jones Henry Fielding writing under the pseudonym Captain Heracles vinegar summoned England's poet laureate Collie Sibber to court for murdering the English language. Fielding was not only a satiric playwright and novelist he was also a lawyer and a notorious wag. And Saturday is March 18th, and on that day in 1932, in the small town of Shillington, Pennsylvania, Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Updike was born. A very happy birthday to Mr. Updike. And I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in Literary History.
2: I know my chicken. You got to know
1: I have Doug Preston on the line. Doug, welcome to Moby Lives Radio.
3: Oh, thank you, Dennis.
1: To uh, to just clue in our listeners, Doug is the author of a number of books, including um, uh, the book, the uh, the novel, The Relic, which was turned into a movie, and his most recent is Dance of Death, another novel. He's also uh, a frequent contributor to the New Yorker magazine. And, Doug, I wanted to talk to you now about uh, a current project of yours, a nonfiction project, uh, about a murderer in Italy known as the Monster of Florence. First of all, can you just tell me about that project? What is is the Monster of Florence, and and what were you writing about it? Well,
3: the Monster of Florence is the Jack the Ripper of Italy. Uh, He is Italy's most famous, notorious criminal. He killed people in the hills of Florence between 1974 and 1985, and the case has never been solved. It's the longest-running and most expensive criminal investigation in Italian history. Mm -hmm. And I lived in Florence uh, for many years, and I met a journalist there who had covered the case for La Nazione, and we decided to write a book about the investigation, uh, which is truly fascinating. It's a... It's a story out of crime and punishment. And uh, so we began working on this, and we decided to write a book, and we got a contract with RCS Libri, which is uh, the largest book publisher in Italy. They are the company that owns Rizzoli, for example, in the (coughs) United States. And so we've been working on this book, and the book uh, criticizes uh, a judge in Italy who's very powerful named Mignini. Giuliano Mignini and well I went to Italy on February 14th to uh, do some research with my journalistic partner Mario Spezzi and uh, on February 22nd I was taken into custody by the police and interrogated on February 23rd and then basically told to leave Italy
1: and never come back okay let's back up what had you said about the judge
3: well, it's, it's, a, it's very interesting. The Monster of Florence was, we believe, a psychopathic serial killer of a certain type. Um, Mignini is now in charge of, the, of one branch of the investigation, and he has a different theory. His theory is that the Monster of Florence was not actually a person, but was a satanic sect of decadent noblemen and professionals who needed female body parts uh... for black masses in order to offer them up uh, as offerings as worship to the devil
1: this is and the judge's theory
3: this is the judge's theory now there's very no very little evidence for this he's got a couple of crazy people who have given false confessions along those lines but there's no actual evidence and our book uh... criticizes this judge and his a uh, theory it's not hard to criticize a theory like that mm-hmm. Well What what did he
1: base his theory on? Is there, is there anything to it?
3: Well, there there really isn't anything to it. I mean this is the incredible thing. This is this is like the Salem witch trials of Italy. I mean, it is it's a theory that in, in search of evidence, as opposed to forensic evidence in search of a theory, this is just the opposite. It's mm-hmm. a theory mm-hmm. in search of evidence. And uh, it's been an investigation now that this particular theory has been under investigation now for five or six years. Mm-hmm. it just gets wilder and wilder.
1: And, and were you on the record as criticizing this judge? Uh, or how, how was he aware that you were writing critically of him, if the book isn't out yet?
3: A good question. Um, Mario Spezzi, my, my partner in this, is a very articulate guy. And he went on Italian television back in 2004. In a very important show, that's sort of equivalent to America's, you know, most wanted. Mm-hmm. And he criticized the judge and his theory.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: On November 18, 2004, the police broke into Spetsy's apartment and took his computer and all his papers and documents. And on his computer was the manuscript of our book.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So the judge had an opportunity to read what we were going to write about him or what we had written about him, and he was enraged. And he, this is what started this harassment of Spezzi. First, uh, he was searched once. He was charged with 18 crimes, which were labeled uh, secret. And to this date, his lawyer and himself, Spezzi, have had no access to uh, the uh, criminal charges against them. Um,
1: are those charges still outstanding?
3: Well, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, they... There are 18 charges, and Spezzi doesn't know what they are.
1: So he's going to be going to court for he doesn't know what?
3: Well, the Italian justice system is is sort of strange. Um, he's ba- basically been indicted for these 18 crimes, but hasn't actually been arrested for them. Mm-hmm. There's, there's sort of a... The Italian system offers a middle ground between actually being arrested and being indicted. So he's sort of been indicted, but not quite
1: arrested. So he's in, he's in uh, criminal purgatory exactly uh-huh so putting it. so let's move ahead to to you going to italy and being taken into custody as well uh, relate the events to us what exactly happened
3: well it was it was very interesting i i had known that the that this judge and a prosecutor were very upset at our book which by the way is being published in april in italy so as the publication date approaches their activities seem to have increased.
1: Mm-hmm. So the book, the book is actually done, or you were it finishing it? Uh-huh. It's
3: done in Italian. I'm uh-huh. rewriting it for publication in America in uh-huh. English, and I will put in uh, a chapter on this my, my recent experience.
1: Uh-huh. So so what were you doing when you were picked up?
3: Well, I went to Italy on vacation with my, my wife and two little children, and we went on February 14th. And... Uh, on February 22nd, the police called me on my cell phone, which surprised me because I wondered how they'd gotten the number,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: they said that I had to meet with them immediately. It was absolutely essential.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I, I was in the Piazza della Signoria, which is the great piazza in Florence, and the police uh, met me there and took me into custody, ironically, about 100 feet from the spot where Savonarola was burned uh, during the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the
1: irony uh, did not uh, amuse you at the time.
3: Well, the, the, the irony was, was lost on them, but it wasn't lost on me. But then they took me into the Palazzo Vecchio itself, mm-hmm. into that magnificent Renaissance courtyard that's so famous, they actually gave me the citazione, presented me with a legal summons, mm-hmm. saying that I had to appear before this judge in Perugia, the same judge who'd been criticized for an interrogation.
1: The, the same judge who had the, the theory about the murders?
3: Right. The mm-hmm. judge that we criticized, the judge who had the theory about the murders. The judge, by the way, who also signed the search warrants of Spezzi's apartment. Um, so this judge, he's a very, very powerful judge in Italy, very well known, um, and uh, he seems almost in, unstoppable.
1: Huh.
3: Um, it, it, it would take a, a minister of the government to rein him in. Mm-hmm which the government would be very reluctant to do.
1: And what is your theory here? Is this man just driven by anger that you have disagreed with him? Uh, does he feel you are obstructing uh, a legitimate investigation, or what's what's animating him?
3: Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, either he actually—well, let me, let me tell you about some of the substance of the interrogation, because that was the most, uh, for me anyway, the most frightening— Okay. experience of all, mm-hmm. I was brought into this office where there were three police detectives mm-hmm. and the judge, and I was interrogated in Italian, uh, not given a translator, and not given access to a lawyer.
1: And how good is your Italian?
3: Well, my Italian is, is pretty good, but, you know, you, we're dealing with highly technical legal, legalistic terms and mm-hmm. crimin, criminological terms mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes I would stutter and, and mispronounce words and get confused. And every time I did that, the judge would seize upon that as evidence I was lying. I, you know, Mr. Preston, you said this, and now you say that. You know, he mm-hmm. came back mm-hmm. to something I'd said, you know, five minutes before. You know, now, now, now you're changing your story. You're lying. Mm-hmm. You're lying. Mm-hmm. Tell us the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like bad television. Um, it was very, it was, it's a, thinking back on it, it was amusing, but when it was happening to me, it was pretty frightening. But I finally asked the judge, are you accusing me of a crime and he said yes he said and the crimes that I'm being accused of are obstruction of justice Mm -hmm. planting evidence to try to incriminate an innocent man for murder Mm -hmm. um, and accessory to murder I mean I this is what the judge said that I was guilty of accessory to murder Mm -hmm. and I said these are theories these are just ridiculous theories and he shouted these are not theories these are facts Mm -hmm. So,
1: and now the uh, he said you were you were an accessory to murder. Does your writing uh, theorize as to who the murderer was? Is he, is, is yes, he, it does. Uh-huh. We believe that the monster of Florence was
3: a psychopathic serial killer.
1: But you have a particular person in mind that the judge was accusing you of shielding.
3: The the judge was actually accusing us of just the opposite of trying to frame him. Uh,
1: trying to frame the judge. You no,
3: know, trying to frame the... See, we, we have identified a person we think is the monster of Florence. Okay,
1: uh-huh.
3: And we went and interviewed him.
4: Uh-huh.
3: Because he is connected very intimately with the case. I mean, mm-hmm. He was, in fact, arrested for being the monster of Florence. He was uh, questioned. He was long a suspect of the police. This is not some innocent guy out there, you know, mm-hmm. being surprised. Mm-hmm. But we went and interviewed him mm-hmm. um, as part of our research for the case. And it was a very chilling and interesting interview. Mm -hmm. He revealed information to us that absolutely astounded us.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And this is the person the judge is claiming we were planting evidence, specifically a gun, Mm -hmm. to try to incriminate him um, as the monster of Florence. Mm -hmm. When it turns out the judge seems to believe that my journalistic partner, Spetsy, is a member of this satanic sect Mm -hmm. that... um, was responsible for these killings, mm-hmm. and he specifically—it appears that one of the criminal charges against Spezzi is m- the murder of a doctor whose body was found floating in in, uh, in a lake in Italy five or six years ago.
1: And so your he, association with Spetsy is making you an accessory.
3: Well, that I know all about this murder. That mm-hmm. Spetsy and I have spoken about it. That mm-hmm. I know that Spetsy's a murderer, and therefore I'm an accessory after the fact.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and. How how did uh, how did the interrogation end? Uh, obviously, you got out. What happened?
3: Well, the judge uh, finally ended the interrogation after he, he kept demanding that I tell him what I knew. And mm-hmm. I said, "I've told you everything I know."
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So he ended the interrogation. And he charged me with perjury,
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, with a certain type of perjury in Italy. They call reticenza, which is withholding the truth.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, then he, and he "Then he indicted." And he said, "This is an indictment against you." And uh, you're in a lot of trouble, but we're going to suspend the indictment so you can leave Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will reinstate it at some future date. Mm-hmm. So it appears that the ploy here was to get me out of Italy and not to return.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, what is the status of your writing partner, Mr. Spezzi?
3: Well, he's he's in a lot of danger. I mean, I'm back in America. I'm safe. I, you know, obviously the government would never extradite me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, Spetsy's in grave danger. he's already been ruined financially by these by p- trying to defend himself against these charges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's just a writer, he's not wealthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, his reputation as a journalist his uh, his integrity has been called into question by the police. Um, they've been leaking information to the press uh, about spetsy, about the investigation that is really designed to discredit him as a journalist mm-hmm. and it seems quite likely that he will be arrested and charged with murder
4: mm-hmm.
3: and this, these are trumped up charges and I, I, I do not believe the judge actually believes these things this is an effort to to do away with a, a very troublesome journalist
4: mm-hmm.
3: who is a very effective journalist he, and who has created a lot of opinion in Italy against this investigation There are a lot of people in Italy who feel that this judge's investigation is crazy.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, In fact, uh, among Spezzi's defenders are some other very important judges in Italy who feel that this particular judge is way out of line, is a, And is a disgrace to the Italian judiciary.
1: Well, this is a question I have for you. is is the case both is Betsy's case and the various charges against him and uh, and you are being taken into custody? Are these matters receiving publicity? Is there any kind of public outcry about them?
3: Well, they were um, the day after I was taken into custody, but uh, news some news newspaper articles appeared. Actually, most of the major journals in Italy, covered it uh-huh. I'm, I'm actually a fairly well-known writer in italy because i've done quite a bit of writing in italy my novels are translated into italian and have been published in italy and mm-hmm. have been bestsellers
1: and a few of them have been set in italy as well right excuse me i think if uh, if i'm not mistaken a couple of your novels have also been set there
3: that's right and, and some of my novels have also been set in italy so the italians know my name or many of them anyway already so the fact that I was taken in and interrogated was news in Italy,
4: mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Um, and I hope to generate news reports in the United States about this,
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: because the Italians are very sensitive to you, you know, American public opinion, and and uh, if we can, I think at the very least the State Department should go to this judge and say, what is the evidence you have? against this journalist, this American journalist, that that caused you to take him into custody. And if they can't provide any evidence, which they can't because there isn't any, because I'm not guilty
1: of these things,
3: then I think the State Department should should protest uh, against an unjustified... Uh, treatment of an American citizen.
1: Are you getting any uh, response out of the State Department on this?
3: Well, yes. As a matter of fact, um, I've contacted my senator. Uh, I I live in Maine, and I contacted Susan Collins, who's an excellent senator. Mm -hmm. And she uh, will be, as I understand it, passing this on to the State Department and asking them to take action.
1: And so now your book is coming out when in Italy? It's coming out on April 19th. Not too far off. What does that mean for the case? Uh, I I assume that the judge, is, uh, uh, if if he's trying to shut down uh, a journalist he doesn't like, I assume he also is interested in shutting down the book.
3: Well, this whole thing might be a a legal prelude to preventing publication of the book in Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know yet. Um, At the very least, it's an effort to try to discredit the two journalists who wrote the book, Mm -hmm. So that they can say, well, you know, one of these journalists is under indictment for murder, and the other one is an accessory to murder, and they're Mm -hmm. both perjurers, you can't believe a word of it.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: I don't know whether that strategy will succeed. Often that kind of negative publicity will cause a book to sell.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I do believe that after the book's published, we will both be sued for libel. Um, In Italy, it's very common for judges and police officials and prosecutors to sue journalists for libel. Uh which never happens in America. That's extremely rare. And uh-huh. The libel laws are different. But in Italy, it's a tool used by people in positions of great power to squelch criticism.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, so you, you need uh, the backing of, of a publisher on this one as well.
3: Well, we'll find out. Uh, we have a good publisher.
1: Yeah. Are they prepared to, uh, to undergo a legal onslaught?
3: I'm prepared, just as long as I don't have to go back to Italy to testify. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: It sounds like you can't go back to Italy. But,
3: you know, the, the the lawyers for the publishing house went over the manuscript with a fine-tooth comb. We made many small changes. Uh-huh. And, of course, the 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 re, the defense against libel, the ultimate defense, is that it's the truth. And everything in our book is the truth. And so if they want to take us into court and try to prove that something in the book is wrong or the, in error that we've libeled somebody, then they're going to have a hard time with that because uh-huh. we have absolutely told the truth in this book and every detail is correct.
1: Looking beyond the troubles you are having with that one particular judge, do you think that there is a chance the book will cause a reopening of the investigation?
3: Well, the, the investigation actually has never been closed. Uh-huh. They're still looking for these murderers, these satanic sect murderers that, uh, that you know, were behind the killings.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I don't think the case will ever be closed. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's become, you know, the fact is that many innocent people, not just me and Specy, but many innocent people have been ruined by this investigation mm-hmm. hundreds mm-hmm. there have been a number of people who have been investigated who committed suicide
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, 100,000 men have been examined or interrogated in this investigation over the years
4: mm-hmm.
3: it's a huge investigation um, they, I don't know if, if you ever saw the movie Hannibal uh,
1: that was, was that the first one or the sequel There was the
3: sequel or the, or the book by Thomas Harris
1: yeah the, no didn't uh, see the sequel
3: well he, he actually tells a story in that book of the monster of Florence I most see. readers thought it was fiction but in fact it's, it's the truth uh-huh. um, you know that was you know he Harris was fascinated with this case and he attended the trial of one of the uh, one of the so-called uh, killers mm-hmm. who was acquitted mm-hmm. and he tells the story of the case at least up to the point up to that point in his uh, book mm-hmm. but I just think the case is, will, will never end it's like a it's it's a monster. It's like a shark that's been gutted and keeps circling and swallowing its own innards and over and over again.
1: It's so so you are not uh, particularly sanguine about uh, your book spotlighting this one particular suspect again.
3: No, not not really. Uh, part of the problem is we can't name this suspect. We mm. really don't have the. The right to go out and and make a public accusation against Mm -hmm. someone like Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So what we do in our book is we present the evidence,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: and an acute reader, an intelligent reader, would would look at the evidence and say, "Wow, you know, this guy is right there." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so many lines of evidence that lead to him,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: but we can't say that. We can't point at those lines of evidence. We can't do anything that would that would indicate our journalistic belief that mm-hmm. in fact he is the monster of
1: Florence mm-hmm. so when can people in America look forward to reading a copy of this book
3: well I've, I'm working on uh, taking the Italian version and rewriting it mm-hmm. in English it can't mm-hmm. just be translated but it has to be rewritten for an American audience uh-huh. most Americans have never heard of the case, right. most Italians know it intimately so right. there has to be a lot more information.
1: What's the name of the Italian book?
3: It's called a Dolce Colline di Sangue, which in Italian means sweet, bloody hills. It doesn't sound very good in English, but it sounds Mm. a lot better in Italian. Mm. But in English, the title will be The Monster of Florence.
1: Okay. Well, Doug Preston speaking to us from your home in, in Maine. Thank you very much for coming on Mobile's Radio, and good luck with the continuing fallout from this.
3: Well, thank you, Dennis. I appreciate your interest.
1: And that's our show for this week. Thanks to Doug Preston for coming on and talking about what must be a very difficult situation right now. He spoke to us from his home in Maine. And thanks, of course, to our staff here at Melville House. Our engineer was Andrew Steinmetz, and then there are our editor, reporters, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and, of course, publisher, Valerie Marians. We'll be back next week. We hope you will, too. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.
2: El último habitante del planeta con todo el dinero y se tomó su tiempo pensó gastarlo todo en una noche para que lo iba Su propia cara por la superficie Con